If you enjoyed our last episode with visionary residential real estate developer Bill Parks, you will also enjoy today's episode of EK on the Go. We'll look at a developer who's reshaping our city across many different neighborhoods and with projects that include mixed use and retail with an emphasis on what I call the fun factor, restaurants, hotels, nightclubs, and more. Our guest today is Scott Shapiro, the developer of Melrose Market, the new Harvard Exit, Lodges on Vashon, Linwood Bolinskate, and many other memorable places. Scott's a graduate of the Columbia Business School, and he heads Seattle-based Eagle Rock Ventures, where he pulls funding from local investors to create or redevelop iconic places, hopefully as sustainable businesses and places to be enjoyed for many years into the future. So if you've ever wondered how fun, remarkable places come to be created in the area, or how they're rediscovered and preserved, you'll want to join us today. Today, through the lens of one man's efforts to create new places, we will explore what sort of planning goes into creating these places, places that many of us may take for granted, how it all works financially, and what developers maybe might do differently to ensure that the places that get built today are more fun and serve people better. So Scott, I've known you for many years, and in full disclosure, in my work as a real estate broker, I've marketed um, some of your condo developments in the past. Mm -hmm. You're from Spokane, Washington, and you attended Columbia. What's your journey, and how did you wind up here in Seattle? Well, I um, moved back to Washington State 18 years ago. Um, I always kind of figured I would move back to Washington State. It just feels like home. But I spent 12 years in between um, Spokane and coming to Seattle uh, back east. So further to kind of get back into my history, my parents moved to Spokane when I was six months old, so I was actually born in New England my dad got a job teaching at Eastern Washington University. So, What did he teach? Uh, accounting. He's okay. in the business school. And uh, so went to public school in Spokane and then went to college, went to Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, and was a government and American studies major, so liberal arts, um, and thought I would, always interested in real estate, but also interested in government and politics and history and kind of went that route originally. Um, went back to Spokane for six months, worked on a political campaign, then went to D.C., and when I was in D.C., I decided that the, the political life was not for me and going to law school and doing politics was not the direction I wanted to, to go. And um, I was always interested in real estate, so I moved into real estate there and realized and wanted to do real estate back in my home state where I felt a little more connection. And it was also easier to get started and actually like the, the environment here as well, both the physical environment and the political environment. So... Worked in D.C. for a developer before I moved up to New York to go to business school. Okay. Is there a connection between um, working as a developer and, and politics? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... I had, better or worse? Yeah. I, I mean, you deal with politics and whatever you do, and that's... Um, you deal with the, the city and city council and, and policy decisions and political decisions they make um, affect what I do and affect our community, but also just dealing with the community, um, dealing with neighbors and neighborhoods and... So you, you have to be, I think in any job, but in real estate, be politically aware and um, cognizant of what's happening politically. So so when we had Norm Rice on as a guest about mm -hmm. three episodes ago, I mean, he talked about how the, the Seattle process and how much it, you know, in Seattle in particular, there's an expectation. Part of it, I think he created that in his mm -hmm. approach, but of really engaging the community. Yeah. So it kind of, how does that sort of layer onto your approach? Yeah. Well, there's the part that you voluntarily want to, you want to know your customer, you want a building 
to fit into a neighborhood, but you also want it to meet the needs of the tenants and the tenants' customers. So um, we really want to be aware of that. But there's a very much a culture here of everyone having a voice or many voices multiple times over a long period of time, which is nice that everyone can have a voice and have that opportunity. The challenge comes that um, it delays projects and that delay ends up costing not just the developer, but really the customer, the end user at the end of the day. So if you're building housing, it means that, that those additional costs get added on to the customer, mm-hmm. whether it's in rent or when the purchase price of buying a unit. So as you said, welcome to Seattle. Welcome to Seattle. Um, so why did you choose to see, move back to Seattle? You could have moved, obviously, back to Spokane or some other place. So what caused, you know, Seattle? Yeah, simple, I mean, simple demographics. I mean, it was both professional and personal. Um, you know, professionally, Seattle has much more growth, and we've even more growth than I think I would have thought 18 years ago in terms of people moving here for jobs. And that growth drives demand for everything. So for housing, for retail restaurant spaces. So for being in the real estate business, you want to go where there's more demand for real estate. Um, And then personally, too, I was single and moved here. And it was just, there's a lot more young people, so to speak, than there there are in Spokane. Young single people. Yeah, Yeah. right. You came from Tacoma. I mean, there's there's just more people here with... Similar interests and backgrounds right. and education. And so, sure. yep. Yeah, much more fun. Yep, much more fun. Um, at the beginning of every show, I ask our guests to think about a local place that matters to them. And I was wondering if there's a place in the Pacific Northwest that you kind of go to that for inspiration or that means something special yeah. to you. I can't say there's maybe one place, like some people I know go to one place every year to re energize or get inspired. I was talking with another developer who has an office in Pike Place Market and uh, one of the office buildings there. And he, he says he likes being there because being at Pike Place is the soul of Seattle. And I agree with him that it really is kind of the, the heart and energy and um, kind of cultural maybe center for Seattle. And mm-hmm. it's nice that mix of there's housing there, there's retail, restaurants, there's the market, there's office, and there's history. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's fun to be in that environment. And I think that's a kind of, I don't, I don't go there as often anymore, but, um, but I like, I do like to go there. And I think it's always something I, I, when people come to town, I always suggest that they go there. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, kind of looking at what you've done. What was your first development project? It sounds like you, you may have been involved in one supporting another developer outside of Seattle before you got started. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked for developers. I worked for a big development firm in New York for a couple of years. But when I went out on my own here, I did some kind of just starting out, I did some consulting work and a little bit of brokerage work for some other property owners and developers um, just to cover the bills and build relationships and gain some market knowledge. Um, And then around, you know, a few deals kind of came together around the same time in, I don't know, maybe 2004 or so. One was a 14-unit condo conversion that actually you helped um, sell those units where you took an apartment building in Wallingford and fixed it up and then sold off the individual units as kind of workforce condos, so very affordable for people, kind of first-time condos mm-hmm. for a lot of people, which was nice. Um, there were a lot of, t- actually, as I recall, teachers that bought those, which yeah. was like really hard these days to yeah, find housing for teachers. Yeah, it's, yeah, you can't recreate that, unfortunately, for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. just what you know, the growth and then the expensiveness of buying apartment buildings and condo liability law and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that came into being. We also, um, my partners on several deals, they uh, um, had started some nightclubs in town and other 
venues and they um, had owned Chop Suey and um, the fam, but they they had sold the business, but they had the right to buy the real estate. And um, when the family who owned it and retired to east of the mountains wanted to sell it, then um, I helped them put that partnership together to buy that property. So for our listeners who think of Chop Suey as just something you'd get in a Szechuan restaurant, what is Chop Suey or what was? Um, it's a nightclub yeah. on um, Capitol Hill on uh, 14th and Madison. Right. So that was another one that kind of came into that time. And, and then um, nearby, while that was going on, we ended up buying a building two blocks away on 12th Avenue on Capitol Hill. And literally on Seattle University's campus, it's, on, it's surrounded by Seattle U on three sides. And it was an automotive repair garage. And we converted it uh, to two spaces, one Stumptown Coffee it's Portland-based, and this was their first Seattle location in their local roastery. And then Cafe Press, which is a French cafe and the second restaurant for the for the owners of uh, Le Pichet, which is right near the market. Getting back to Plug Place Market. Yep. Yeah, yep. sort of yeah, yep. spreading the goodness yep. east. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like you've done a, quite a few projects on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. and was wondering, and, and also you moved back here, I think it sounds like partially for the culture and mm-hmm. kind of where you were in life. Yep. So what is the your feeling about Capitol Hill as a neighborhood and why you know why the focus there? Yeah, I, I love Capitol Hill for a lot of reasons. I why? mean, just first of all, just location, being in real estate, they always say the three most important things are uh, location, location, and location. So um, it's it's close to downtown. You can walk there. It has, you know, easy access to get in the highways, pretty easy access to UW and Seattle Central, I mean, education center, Seattle Central, community college, um, Seattle University. Um, it has a diverse collection of people, right? So you have people of all ages, backgrounds. And so I like that kind of culture that's up there. Mm-hmm. And it's a place where people want to live and visit. And so it's a good place to, to invest, to Great. build, to renovate. And so with your projects, then you maintain an ownership interest oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? So Correct, yeah. yeah. And then along yeah. with other partners yes. sometimes. Yeah, know. yeah. So we're not merchant builders we or, or buyers. We we buy things um, and either renovate them and hold on to them or we um, will build ground up. But right. we're long-term, so we, we're focused on making sure that it's designed right um, and built right so it'll last and meet the needs of our our customers. So and so I think that's a fascinating issue because we I think that as Seattle has grown and become a more global city, there's more merchant built, there's more people that are yep. investing and building here that aren't uh, living here. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about you know the choices that you make as a yeah. as a sort of someone who's part of the community and living here versus what choices you might otherwise if you lived in New York or I think it depends on your capital source. I mean that's kind of the key. So my investors are my friends and they're in it for the long term. So unlike some capital sources where you get money from a, a private equity fund that's based in New York or San Francisco or where have you, um, those funds, the way they're set up is that they need to sell the property, their investments within a three to seven year time frame. So, and sometimes even sooner, but they'll build something or renovate something and then they'll sell it. So that's fine. That's just how that model works. You know, our model is a little different. And there's a lot of people who do what we do as well. Mm-hmm. Tends to be often, you know, maybe smaller developers or investors, although there's some family offices that hold things for the long term. Um, so we, you know, again, we're focused on making sure that it's, you know, it's going to last and, and fit in. And I would say you're also accountable. I mean, you're probably, you and your investors are actually probably going to the venues or eating yeah. there. And I mean, that's part sh- of it too. Show your face. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we want to do stuff. We want to do projects that that we can take advantage of in the sense of if we can go, 
you know, if we can build spaces where there's going to be restaurants that we're going to go to, then great, you know, or even stuff that maybe that we're not going to live in right now, like our micro housing projects. But I was that customer 20 years ago when I lived in New York City. I know what that's like to live in a small space and really have limited income, um, but really want it to be in the heart of things in a good location. Uh, so, you know, always, again, thinking about the customer and what the what what people need um, in the community. And so I think being local allows you to maybe have a little better sense of of what's needed and how to make it work on all levels so aesthetically financially logistically however however you you know however mm-hmm. your criteria how all things fit together and probably what's needed also in the future versus just today cuz you're yeah. not selling it off in 2 or 3 years yeah you, you want to make sure it's it. going to be needed 10 10 15 years from now whether we're owning it or not, but mm-hmm. but we are thinking that that's the way we, when we look at the investment, how we're going to model it. Can you tell us what your most recent project is and how that um, sort of deal came together and what it looked like? Yeah, the most, I think the most recent one we completed was um, renovation of the Harvard exit, which was uh, a three-story red brick building um, in the Harvard Belmont Historic District of uh, North Capitol Hill. Beautiful building, something you'd see on a Ivy League campus. Um, it was built by the Women's Century Club, which was a women's civic organization. That, and uh, they built the building, I think, in 1926 and used it and owned it. Actually owned it till the late 60s when they sold it to a local family. And um, they con- the local family converted what was a performance theater on the first floor into a movie theater. So for the last 10 years, if any of our listeners have been to the Seattle International Film Festival, mm-hmm. they might have seen films there. Yep. You know? yep. Yeah. And, and then the, and in the 80s, they took the third floor, what was a ballroom, and converted that to a second uh, screen. So there was a, it was a two-screen cinema, and um, they had sold half. The family had sold half of it, or the families owned it had sold half of it to Landmark uh, Theaters, which is a big kind of boutique chain. And um, Landmark and the family just um, decided that it wasn't the way that people watch movies nowadays. It's different than it was twenty years ago. We can watch it on our computers and on phones and. And so there's just less of uh, demand for these kind of small theaters that economically it doesn't work as well. And this building had a lot of deferred maintenance as well. And so they decided to sell the building and um, they didn't want it to be public. And um, one of the local brokers in town had um, knew that I liked buildings, especially buildings that there's not an easy solution for what to do with them. And he brought it to me and I uh, said I was interested. And so we got under contract and... Now, did that have a landmark status placed on the building? So the building itself is is not landmark itself, but it's in a it's in a historic district. So all those buildings fall under the landmarks. And that's is right. that the Harvard Belmont Historic District? Yes, yeah, okay. and it, and it goes before mean? the landmark. So basically, it means you can't turn it, you can't tear it down. And and actually, even more than that, specifically, we can't do anything on the facade without approval of the Landmarks Commission. And that affect the the price of the building? Do you think? Um, on this building, I don't necessarily think it did because I don't think anyone was going to go buy this building and tear it down, and we wouldn't we wouldn't have bought it and right. tear it down. It was kind of built to the capacity of the zoning. Okay. I mean, you'll see it in some cases where, you know, it's a four story building, but it's you know maybe you can go up forty stories, right. and then that's where you come into issues. But this one, you'd end up with the same box right. basically, so it didn't make sense to do to buy it and tear it down. So really, that wasn't so much of a hindrance to purchase the building and the things that we needed to get approval from were very minor um 
like putting in a fence around the gar- new garbage area and putting in a bike rack and adding a, a door to the basement, but below the brick line. So it was, it was uh, unobtrusive. So all things that were not controversial and we didn't have any problem uh, getting approval. And then how did the community, because I know people did have a lot of connection. I mean, I would imagine yeah. some people were worried um, it, it's going to be torn down or it's going to change. And, yeah. You know, so I, I mean, talk, walk me through the sort of the politics, if you will. Yeah. So I did. We definitely got, when I went public, we definitely got, you know, people were worried. And then I think pe- once people found out that we were buying it, uh, I think that allayed most people's fears just based on our history of buying other historic buildings um, and fixing up, including Melrose Market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that... Uh, most people were fine with it. There were a few people I, I got emails from that were sad that the movie theater was closing. And, and I, and I, you know, again, I have some memories too of going to movies there. Um, but it wasn't our decision to close the movie theater. It was actually the, the, the landmarks that decided who was managing the theater to close it down. So they made that decision. And so obviously we needed to find a new use for it in our community. And that's where we came into play. And then how, who, who's using the building now and how did you sort of... Yeah, so we figured, we kind of did our analysis of what you can do with it. And so because of, uh, um, and we wanted to get historic tax credits to help make it more financially feasible. But when you look at an old building, you, you want to utilize the real valuable parts of it, like the historic nature, the... You don't want to just tear it down and start over. I mean, that's why you buy these older buildings with character. And you that character is what attracts people to the building. I mean, it's kind of a selling point um, or a leasing point. And so so when we looked at the inside, you know, the 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 way the halls were let up, set up and the molding and, and the ceiling heights and the chandeliers all had, you know, they were great to look at, right, when you go into a space like that. But everything was really tired. So we wanted to use to the extent possible what was there. And, and, and for the historic tax credits, we had to keep kind of the basic open areas, the hallways where, where things were located. So it didn't make sense, for example, to like divide it up into a whole bunch of little small rooms as apartments or a hotel. It didn't, and so we really wanted to keep the open spaces, the two, particularly the two big open spaces open. Um, to the greatest extent possible. And the open spaces were like the lobby, the theater themselves? Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So the parlor, which is kind of to the right when you walk in with, a, with an actual working fireplace. And then the, the first floor, which was a theater, um, and then converted into a cinema or a performance theater and then into a movie movie screen. And then now it's just a big open area. And then the third floor too, which was a ballroom and converted to a theater. So we're keeping those open. So we came to the conclusion that the highest and best use was to uh, make it office space. And that allowed us to you know keep it open and be an open workspace that you see a lot of creative firms um, architects or designers or technology companies that like that open space. Um, and so that's the way we went with getting it permitted and uh, renovating it. And so w- during this process, we didn't have a tenant uh, or tenants in hand when we were doing the planning and permitting and financing and construction mm-hmm. part of it. Um, and then during that process, we were able to secure uh, the Mexican government as our tenant and they moved their consulate from Belltown to our building, and they take up about 70% of our building. So that's kind of shocking to me because downtown or Belltown, where the Mexican consulate was, seems mm-hmm. like generically, you know, where you'd want to be, closer mm-hmm. to the business hub. So why did they move? Do you have any insights? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of reasons. One, their lease expired there, um, and so they were looking for space. But they, you know, for them, um, a lot of, you know, like any tenant, you know, price is important, but quality of the space is important, and access. And actually, our site is very accessible. Um, in fact, in some ways more accessible than their former site on Third Avenue. 
in Belltown because now there's light rail just you know a few blocks away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the streetcar as well, like again a few blocks away from us. There's good bus routes, and um, it's actually easier to drive and park around our building than it is now in Belltown. Mm-hmm. I mean, to drive into Belltown with mm-hmm. all the traffic, um, so it's easy to get off I five and just go up to Capitol Hill. So all those things made it more attractive for them to move to our space. And it's a bigger space, too, than what they had. And it's all fresh. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a new building in Old Show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. Um, and it's beautiful. And, and are they the sole tenant? They are not the sole tenant. They're 70% of it. And there's still uh, one large space available on the third floor of the former, former ballroom. And in the interim, until we find kind of one big tenant, we've been leasing it out to smaller tenants, kind of like a co-working space. So awesome. We been, well, if you... If you happen to be someone looking for, how many square feet is it? The total square footage is 5,200 square right. feet. So, and it's, we built it out. There's seven private offices with like glass windows, you know, glass uh, storefronts looking into the the open area. And then there's a conference room and there's two bathrooms and a shower actually, and a little kitchen. So Sounds it's great. it's all it's all literally built out, even furnished. So it's all ready to go. Well, we'll include a link to Eagle Rock Ventures. Sure. And, yeah. People want to learn more. So. And so what, I'm just curious, what do you see like as your biggest win or your biggest success over this career, which is 18 years now? Yeah. Is that right? You yeah. know, what, something that was sort of an unpredictable outcome or a big, whether it's financially or in terms of the building itself, that was like a kind of a surprise win. Yeah. Because you've done so many different things. Yeah. You know, it's, there's not one thing that's like the clear winner. And it's sort of like people ask me like, what's sort of what you're asking me, what's your favorite building, your favorite project? And it's sort of like asking like... You know, I have two kids. Who's your favorite kid, right? Well, I love them both. They're they're different. You know, I always joke. I have a I have a son and a daughter, and I, I they say well, who, sometimes they'll ask me like, who do they like better, or who do I like better? And I say, well, you know, my son's my favorite son, and my daughter's my favorite daughter. And okay. then, so, um, but if one of your kids did something that just really wowed you, um, yeah, you know, not to prejudice your feelings about the other, is there yeah. anything fun that sort of came along the way as a developer that? feels really good. Yeah, you know, it's fun to go into buildings and see people in those buildings and really enjoying the spaces. So to see the Mexican consulate there, to see their employees there, and then see the 100, 150 people, you know, their constituents that come every day for constituent services um, in the building, uh, it's nice to see their face. I mean, everyone was really excited to move from their other building, older, tired building, to this newly renovated building. And, you know, there's a sense of pride when you're in a building that's really beautiful. I always found that building slightly frightening because it was sort of rectilinear, had big black, big plate glass windows that were all blackened out, as I recall, or it it never felt. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's some of it. But this, our new building is much more open, just airy feeling, brighter, fresher. uh, And, you know, you just feel, you go to a space. I mean, like anyone, you go to a space and the space feels, whether it's a restaurant or a movie theater or someone's home, if it, you know, if it's, been refreshed and just uh, if it's a neat space, then you really just have a better feeling about it. And that's part of anything that you you want people to have a great experience. It's not just so when it, when you're going to shop at a place or a restaurant or eat at a place, it's not just the food you're eating at that place. It's the whole experience, which is how you how you approach the building and see it and going inside and and just looking at the furniture and how the space is decorated and the energy and the lighting and all that. It, it affects really how you have your whole experience of the meal. It's not just the, the food and drink that you're having there. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's just nice to see people in our buildings um, and having a great experience. So again, like Harvard Exit or even like with Melrose Market, uh, people eating 
or shopping there and just um, seeing their faces and seeing their their experiences that they're having there. So, so one thing, you know, you, you introduced me to Linwood Bolenskate when you acquired mm-hmm. the property. It's an mm-hmm. amazing, huge piece of real estate. In Linwood. In Linwood, yeah. yeah. And to yeah. me, that's so fascinating that you've sort of, you took over in a business and the real estate. Yep. Is that right? Yep. And And then- the, and you have multiple generations that have gone there, um, yep. and you didn't really change the use. Um, you Correct. just kind of made it better and sort of yep. made it run more efficiently. But I mean, what's that feel like to see the sort of the new generation? You had to kind of retailer it a little bit, I would imagine, just yep. to make it so. Not to dive into a whole other project, sure. but it's sort of interesting the generational sort of challenge. Of- yeah, and that's fun, and, I, and that's a particularly fun project because you have people using it of all ages. Literally, we have people. I mean. I have a picture of my daughter when she's like two and a half with a bowling ball and 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 bowling. And then we have people there with their like great grandparents, you know, in their eighties and nineties, you know, um, with their you know great grandkids doing it. So it's it's an accessible um, family activity, um, accessible both from an age perspective and a price point and a location. Um, people go to have fun. It's nice to have places where people go to have fun. And um, and you know, over the years we've had it over a dozen years now. It did need refreshing, and we've been doing that, you know, over the courses we've had capital to put back into the business. But mm-hmm. when we first got it, you know, I think the it still smelt a little smoky. I think maybe a year or two before the state had outlawed in smoking in the interior of buildings. But as you remember, in the olden days, people would go and smoke at bowling alleys, yeah, and so right. we had to take up most of the carpet and repaint the walls and clean out all the. HVAC system to to refresh it. How about the bowling balls? Did they also have smoke sort of penetrating them, or did you keep the balls? Because it's interesting that again, like the balls and the shoes, yeah. you know, and the skates, the, you know, the balls don't really absorb odor. Um, we get new balls periodically, but you know they're hard, and so they tend to last. And do they wear they, out? They, get, they do wear out. They get chipped up by the mechanical equipment, the okay. pin setters, uh-huh. um, and the ball returns. Uh, but the shoes, we uh, you know. They wear out every few years, and so we go and buy new shoes. So, so I, you know, yeah, I just have to say I admire you for a lot of things, but one of them is you just know a lot of things, sort of deep into all these businesses. You really get into them, and you understand the nuances of you know. Yeah, oh, and it's know. not like I knew it. I mean, I went to grow up in Spokane. I w- I went to Lincoln Heights Bowling Alley, whatever, as yeah. a, as a kid. So I, I knew as a customer bowling a little bit, but you know, the the fun part about what we do sometimes is that we learn the business. So I didn't necessarily know how to run a bowling alley, and we have a roller rink there as well. And we have a, a a little restaurant, kind of a bar and restaurant. So there's kind of three different parts of our business there. But I I learned it, and that's kind of fun. I mean, kind of what I learned with liberal arts education is to learn how to learn. So if if I don't know of something, I can go figure out how to make it happen. So I, I, I learn. I talk to yeah. people. I read. I get the experts who know how to run food and beverage. I talk to people who've been running bowling alleys. You know, and so we learn the business. And you know, maybe after six months, you get you learn a majority of what you need to learn. But you're always fine tuning it. So yeah. that seems like a big payoff for you that you get to be learning. You know, because yeah. real estate development it's a generalist type of thing. Or there's no. It um, is a generalist, and I like that. I like that I get to. I'm pretty broad, and maybe I'm not. I, I can't go fix the pin setters, but I know who to. You know, I know some of the kind of the maybe some of the general issues are, but I know I know an expert um, mechanic who does specialize in wow. maintaining our pin setters. Are they so a dying breed? Uh, yeah, there's not well. It's not like you're in high school and you go, I want to go be a pin setter for, or I mean, a, a mechanic for bowling alleys. Um, but we train, we have, a, you know, a, a guy who's, um, who's been doing it for several decades, well, I say several, at least three or four decades. Um, and we have him train 
our new mechanics, you know, who are in their 20s mm-hmm. to learn the skill. Mm-hmm. Um, like and, and like anything, I think a lot of what you learn is you learn on the job. Mm-hmm. So if it's interesting to people, you kind of learn the skills that you have to learn to meet that because things change too. I mean, the um, you know, we've had some, you know, when I was growing up, we actually um, – kept score by hand right and it was kind of when we were growing up that was oh, yeah. when things changed to electronic and so you know there's things that you have to learn because the technology changes but some of the basics of just customer service and things like that are are kind of timeless i would say so i just was curious also kind of your biggest learning experience like what has been can you think of like a big challenge along the way in terms of like getting these projects off the ground or completed that was really challenging in your 18 years um, I mean, there's always things that you don't know. It's sort of like you, you know, how do they say you, you don't know what you don't know? And so you, you start doing stuff and then you're like, oh, I guess I have to learn this or this is an issue I didn't think about or, or it ends up being more complex. Um, it seems like you model, you, th- you model things very, I mean, one thing I know you're very fiscally astute and you model yeah. things really, really carefully yeah. to be able to predict. I, a, I, I try to be, I try to be reasonable and yeah. I try to have, um, unlike maybe some of the political things that happen in DC you know, the facts do matter um, in real estate development investment. I have to go out to my investors and if I don't, you know, perform, then they're not going to want to invest me again. And I go out to banks and they lend me money and I personally guarantee it. And if I don't return it, then I, I'm in big trouble. So, and they're not going to lend to me again. So I really do try to make sure that I'm being accurate. Um, and, and there's third party people that verify that. I mean, their appraisers will come and make sure that our, our plan and, that makes sense. So, um, you know, I try to under, my goal is to under promise and over deliver. And I think we've done that a lot of the time and things sometimes come up that you don't expect. And as long as you're kind of transparent and honest with everyone, your investors and your lenders, they kind of understand. I mean, um, that's part of how life works and not, you know, when things come up, how do you deal with it and, and address it? Well, the other thing that's interesting about your body of work is that it's expansive. It's, I think you have a project in LA. We have a bar in LA. So my, my, my um, partners on several deals, they live in Seattle and they had moved to LA with their son just to kind of have a different environment for a few years. And while they were down there, they saw a Hispanic transvestite bar that was for sale and uh, in the Silver Lake neighborhood. And they said, this would be great for uh, one of our bars. Um, you know, we can own, we can buy both the real estate and the business and had the most um, advantageous liquor license that mm-hmm. came with the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, we only had to serve liquor. We didn't have to serve food. So we bought that building and um, we put in the bar that they had here. They own the Cha-Cha Lounge here in Seattle. And we put another Cha-Cha Lounge in, nice. in LA and we've owned it since. And um, one of the former manager here, we brought down to LA and made him a partner and he's been running it since and it's worked out very well. So um, given that sort of geographical, also the lodges on Vashon or lodges mm-hmm. on Vashon. So is there a thread of, sort of consistency at all that you see through all these different projects that would sort of be attributable to you and your role, um, things that you care about? Um, I think, you know, people ask me about the comp, you know, the company that I founded 18 years ago, what is, you know, what's its mission or purpose, whatever. And I, there are kind of three things. It's like a three-legged stool. I say that the company stands on one. I do things that, um, make financial sense because I have investors and I have lenders and I want to keep being in business and I need to provide for my family. So it has to make financial sense first and foremost. Um, second of all, uh, I want to do things that are good for the community. So if I can provide housing for people, like we've done on 
you know, three, 300, I guess, 300 units of micro housing in Seattle and providing a uh, workforce housing for people that's needed, then we're providing a need, then that's great. That's good for the community. We, we, um, uh, renovated a old single room occupancy hotel in the international district and put a hostel there, hosteling international. And we manage that business as well. And so again, we provide affordable lodging in Seattle and, uh, that's well located. So again, that's meeting a need. And then, you know, these retail and restaurant spaces that people are able to rent and, and then go to the, the establishments in those buildings. So that's nice to be able to provide that as well. And then uh, the third thing that's important is to have fun and learn. So I like to work with fun people. I like to work on fun projects and, uh, you know, life's too short to do otherwise. So, mm-hmm. you know, try to pick carefully that uh, projects that meet those three criteria. So when you look at my projects, I think you can see that aspect of the community aspect and mm-hmm. and the fun aspect. So looking off into the future, where do you see your future projects looking like? Is it purely opportunity driven or is there some place you'd like to steer the ship you know, in five or 10 years? Yeah. I mean, it's been opportunity driven. I mean, I've specifically focused on Seattle just because it's um, there's been good growth here and it's easier to find tenants here and customers here and it's easier to get financing and easier to attract investors and lenders to do projects in Seattle versus doing a project, for example, in Spokane. Um, as much as I love Spokane, um, and uh, so, and I've also just because you know uh, have young kids and wanted to be didn't want to have to travel. My wife traveled, especially when the kids were young, to be able to do stuff locally. So pretty much everything I did was within an hour of of home, um, which I like that. And there's enough here, being a small firm, that um, just focusing on this market and knowing this market well, knowing the geography and the zoning. And the politics and um, economics and everything, it made it easier to kind of specialize here. So when people ask me if I specialize in a specific product like office or apartments, I say, no, I am actually um, product agnostic, but geographically focused in Seattle and the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd like to continue that. I mean, again, just because I think I love this community and this is where I live and work and play. Um, although it's gotten much harder for a variety of reasons, some economic and, and, some, and some political as well, which can is you, challenging. Can you talk more specifically about the challenges? Yeah, the I mean, you know, we have we have a very progressive community um, that wants to have um, things be more affordable and wants to have theoretically more product available for all types of people. But the political decisions um, actually are, are have the adverse effect or the the opposite effect. It makes things harder to build here. It makes it harder to provide uh, workforce housing. It takes longer uh, and less of it's produced. So it's a little frustrating for those of us who have been in the business for a long time who, who want to create, create housing, for example, want to meet the need that the community needs, um, but are stymied by political decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I think that part of that's just Sometimes I think from lack of understanding of how the economics work and how how what it takes to 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 do a project, um, you know, and unfortunately on the city council, uh, there's not really any business people that have had to, you know, run a business and understand what it's like and how the numbers work and the mm-hmm. responsibilities. So, mm-hmm. in the private sector, is really important. I mean, for for creating or for uh, meeting the needs of the community, whether it's housing. I mean, majority of the housing, overwhelming majority is going to come, whether it's, you know, houses or apartments, it's going to 
come from the private sector. So really need to think of the private sector as partners um, as opposed to, I don't know, you know, sometimes we're seen as, you know. Antagonist. Yeah. yeah. And it's really like we need to work, everyone needs to work together to meet the needs. And so. Uh, Any ideas like what that might look like, how to create a little bit more um, communication between those two? Groups? Well, we, I mean, we've reached out. It's just hard sometimes because the, I mean, A, everyone's busy if you're on city council and you're getting hit from all different directions. But, um, you know, it's hard. You know, there's, it's hard to, you know, we've, I think people who are doing the, what you know, running businesses have tried to reach out, but sometimes the the facts or reality doesn't fit well with the political uh, environment or uh-huh. the d- political decisions one needs to make if you're a politician to get reelected, right? And if your if your first priority is to keep your job or get a new job in the political arena, that sometimes you may not make the best policy decisions. So Scott, here we are toward the end of the show, and we're back in <laughs> politics. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The thing you tried to leave. Yeah. <laughs> so as I, leaving as, you. <laughs> so as I so as I diplomatically say all this, you know, it's it's challenging and and unfortunately I, I sit here and I look at it and I think, gosh, things get harder to do here and it's making it worse. And I see it's like we're heading to San Francisco where it gets even harder and harder and you have a greater crisis. And that solution is not going to come from the public sector or the nonprofit sector building the housing that people need. So we we do need the public sector um, and the nonprofit sector continue building, particularly the very affordable housing that doesn't make economic sense from a private sector perspective. But the called middle class workforce housing, you know, that really needs to come from the private sector. So the, the, you know, policy decisions and process need to accommodate that um, so we can continue doing it. I mean, just the process here, I've been doing one project and trying to get permitted and in Columbia City neighborhood, and it's taken four years to get our land use approval, you know, and it's going to take another probably up close to a year to get our building permit. So five years to get permitted. So you can imagine the carrying costs oh my God. of the land and all the different, you know, the architect and contract or, you know, contract, it's all the, the, it, it just, it yeah. just hurts the economics. So I got to recoup those costs and that just shows up in rent. So it makes it less affordable. And so I'm looking at a project now outside. I'm actually looking at my first kind of project outside. I'm doing micro housing. Which again, unfortunately, here isn't allowed in residential neighborhoods anymore. But doing a project in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's a much easier process there. They're more, they are growing a lot too, but they're more accommodating for growth. And we're going to be able to get our permit to build in a year, as opposed to five years here. And it's going to make it. I mean, the economics still makes sense to be able to build there, where I couldn't build it here, take that risk. And mm-hmm. so, um, I think if we want to have more housing here and more. Um, whatever type of development to meet the needs of, you know, of the greater population that's moving here for the good jobs, then we need to maybe be open to um, changing how we've been doing things and be a little more innovative and, and efficient. Otherwise, we're not going to we're not going to be able to meet the needs of our customers. And you're the small local developer with it. And a, I'm the with, small local guy. And you're guy. focused on community and fun as well as economic sense. Yeah. And sadly, it sounds like you're being chased out of the... You know, it's harder. It's, and, I, yeah. and I'm not the only one. I have a lot of kind of friendly competitors that are, you know, either developers or even, you know, restaurant owners. It's like, it's hard to do stuff here. And we're, you know, we're all on the same team. And so uh, I think we just continue to, to voice our concerns and try to do what we do well and lead by example. And, and um, you know, and hopefully that the public can see that uh, sometimes we need to make a change politically 
Um, and I think there'll be some opportunity here, you know, kind of locally, but, you know, even on the state or national level, sometimes that, uh, you know, sometimes people try different things and it doesn't work and we need to try, you know, try again and not give up. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, we asked our guests to bring in something physical to share that they care about. I was wondering what you brought us. Yeah. Did you un- unzip your coat? Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't really have any like lucky charms, but the one thing that people always kind of smirk at when I, um, have to write, you know, when I, uh, they say we want to schedule a meeting is I bring out my little day planner, my little old fashioned at a glance. I've not seen one of those in probably a decade. <laughs> That's, I get that a lot. Um, yeah. cause everyone's doing their stuff on their, <laughs> on their, on their phones. And, uh, and so, but since I don't really have to coordinate with that much, it's just me, I can just write it down. I'm very visual. So I have my little day planner I get every year and I have for, I don't know, probably the last 25 or 30 years. And, um, this is where I write down my appointments and, and also I kind of write down notes and cause again, it's just easier and visual. And so that's kind of my little, uh, kind of how I do it. And, 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 you know, I was, I think it doesn't really, someone mentioned to me once it's, in fact, I think I was reading about, um, uh, the founder of Virgin, um, Richard Branson. And he was, he was like, just have your system, whatever it is. And he has like a notebook and that's how he just does everything. You know, he has this notebook and, so I think everyone just needs to come up with a system that works for them, mm-hmm. and this is my system that works for me. And Sweet. so, that's uh, that's every year. This is well, my that's a beautiful thing. thing, and I do think of you as a very systematic person in the best way. You know, you get things done. So Thank good. Thank you. All right. Well, hopefully the next time you're whether you're walking around in the International District, where there's the American Hotel, Capitol Hill with Chop Suey or Cafe Press or up in Linwood, to go for a ball, you'll think of Scott and sort of the economics and the planning and the diligence that kind of goes into recreating or creating these fantastic places in Seattle. Scott, thank you for being our guest. Thank you. Joining us next month will be Roger Valdez, who's affordable housing activist. Um, I think that there'll be some sparks flying in the room. If um, Scott started them, we'll expand upon them with Roger, amazing person. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to EK on the Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and many other places where podcasts can be found. To learn more, you can visit our website at ekreg.com. Here you'll find a link to Eagle Rock Ventures and a few of other Scott's uh, real estate projects. Um, and if you'd like to go up and experience Linwood Bowl and Skate, um, the first one to email us with the word skate and bowl in the subject line of their email, we'll get some free passes to go bowling and skating at Linwood Bowl and Skate. You can send your questions, as always, or request to edwardk at ekreg. And if there's a place that matters to you in Seattle, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from others, like Scott Shapiro, about places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you.